Hello, ciao, and welcome back to the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman. My name is Benedicta Junpa, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Hello, 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 people of the internet. We are back with the new episode. I hope you are well. And today, we are back with Diaspora Road. When I say diaspora word, it means that I will be in conversation with someone. I will be with a guest. For those that are here tuning in for the first time, diaspora word is the segment of the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman in which I'm in conversation with people of the African diaspora and beyond. So I'm very excited actually for this episode and I'm gonna do a brief introduction about our guest and say some words of thank you. I did not put that in the notes so <laughs> she wouldn't know but I'm very excited today to have with me on the podcast Professor Dr. Camilla Hoffman. She's Associate Professor of Sociology and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California. She's the author of the book Contesting Race and Citizenship Youth Politics in the Black Mediterranean. Today we're going to talk about the book but first of all I want to say some thank yous to Camilla. I wanted to, she reminds me of two things in my life. She reminds me of when I met her the first time which was back in 2017 and that's when my activist journey was just starting. I just went to support the citizenship movement that was what I was part of at the time. I was not inside the movement but that day when I met her in that square in Rome in June 2017 with this initiative she reminds me of when my activism journey started and I remember she was literally the only person that was from northern Italy because she's all from Trescore Bergamo which is actually not far from where I grew up also she reminds me as well of the time where I got into my job I got into my job thanks to a guest lecture on citizenship rights and the Afro-Italian community to prepare the lecture I had to do some research and my research actually what helped me was Camilla's writings as research thanks to those writings those shaped me of who I am today the activists that I am the elections I do and also landed me a new job so welcome 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 Camilla to the chronicles of a black Italian woman thank you so much for having me here and thank you for that amazing introduction it means so much um, I remember that protest in 2017 very well and I remember meeting you that day and I'm so happy that we've been able to stay in touch all this time and I'm just so amazed by the incredible work that you've been doing and the podcast and I remember when my book when contesting race and citizenship went into production the press sends you this marketing questionnaire and they say you know who should we reach out to when the book comes out and I said oh, well, absolutely, we have to do Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman, because this is such an important space for talking about not only Black Italianness, but how it connects with the broader Black diaspora. So I'm very excited. Thank you. I'm already, oh my gosh, I'm so honored. Thank you so much <laughs> for including me in the press. I was like, I got that email, I was what's happening here? And I'm truly, I'm truly, truly grateful. You uh, people, you will hear me geeking out and be gushing all over Camilla, because I really, I truly, truly admire her and I'm truly honored and your support really means the world to me literally so thank you so much grazie mille 
<laughs> Grazie a te. Let's get into the episode. And uh, like, yeah, with this question, I already said thank you, but I have to thank you again because this book is so precious because it talks about youth politics in the Black Mediterranean. So your book specifically talks about the struggle for Italian citizenship and the fights, especially of Afro-Italians. Something I found interesting is and I would like to hear from you, is why was it important for you to talk about the Black Mediterranean rather than just the Italian citizenship struggle? Thank you. I That's such a great question to start with. So I started thinking about the Black Mediterranean because, you know, I, I did my PhD. The, the book is based on the dissertation that I wrote for my PhD. And I was based at an institution in the United States. And you know, in the North American Academy, right, when you talk about blackness, often there's a sort of implicit assumption that you're talking about blackness in the United States or North America, or even more broadly, kind of the, the North Atlantic, right? So sort of the, the UK connection. And a really foundational text for Black diaspora studies is, of course, Paul Gilroy's book, The Black Atlantic. And in this book, Paul Gilroy talks about blackness as this diasporic formation that's not that's not that has connections to the national context, but where politics and culture sort of unfold through the relations as Black people have been forcibly or voluntarily have moved back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean, right, from Africa to North America and the Caribbean, and then Black American intellectuals and political leaders and activists who travel back, you know, to across the Atlantic to study and engage in abolitionist organizing. And so the Black Atlantic has become this really important important keyword for talking about the Black diaspora. And as I was getting deeper and deeper into my study of Blackness in Italy, I started kind of wondering, huh, if Gilroy is writing about the Black Atlantic, could we also talk about the Black Mediterranean? Right. And so some of the questions that I was asking myself were, you know, for so many of the people who I, you know, engage in activism alongside and who I've interviewed and work with in Italy, their diasporic journey is one one that takes them or their families across the Mediterranean Sea, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the colonial connection between the Horn of Africa and Italy, or migrants from West Africa who cross the Mediterranean into Italy and then settle and have family, which is sort of different from the Black Atlantic framework, which for Gilroy is very oriented on the history of the transatlantic slave trade. So it connected to all of these bigger questions of, you know, how we talk about Blackness in a way that decenters the North American experience, that acknowledges that there are histories and trajectories of Blackness that have different relationships to the history of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. And then as I started asking these questions, I, I then started to find out that I wasn't the only person thinking about this. Alessandra Di Maio has written about the Black Mediterranean. I was connected with Timothy Raymakers, who was also beginning to write about the Black Mediterranean. And then I found out that for example, Cedric Robinson, who is this great theorist uh, who helped to popularized this idea of racial capitalism, also in his own way was writing about the Black Mediterranean historically. So for me, it became really important as a way to kind of think about specifically how Blackness in Italy and the politics and contestations around Blackness are also shaped by these Mediterranean histories. And the reason why I wanted to think about the whole Mediterranean region and not just Italy is because so many of the activists 
activists and cultural workers who I was interviewing for the book, right? They were struggling for recognition as Italian, but Italy didn't exhaust all the different ways that they thought about their identities and longing, right? Everyone understands their identity as part of a relation between Italy and maybe the rest of Europe and the African countries where their, you know, where their parents emigrated from. And so the Black Mediterranean also becomes a way to think about all the broader ways that people are understanding identity, where citizenship and Italianness is an important part of it, but there are also all of these other dimensions that are bigger than Italy too. Such a powerful way to start. So many talks are going through my mind, but I think one thing that you touch upon is the fact that it's also the vision of the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman or the segment diaspora, the center, the centralizing Blackness. I, I think that's such, it's so important. It's so important to decentralize Blackness because as you said, the assumption is always that Blackness equals the North American experience or the British experience. And I can see that even in my daily life when I walk on the streets of Rome I walk into a shop normally the assumption is rather that I'm American or British is never that oh I can actually be Italian so thank you so much for this power of introduction and really like even if I read the book hearing it from you gives me even better understanding and I'm actually taking notes because professor is in the house (laughs) (laughs) and you know that I I comment on that you know in my book I actually have one of the one of the chapters starts with a story of all the ways that I've been misidentified racially misidentified in Italy and when I and you know obviously I speak Italian with an accent because I grew up in the United States but I do speak fluent Italian but even when I'm in Italy before I even open my mouth people assume that I am every possible ethnicity from every possible country except for Italy, you know, every single time. And if someone sees me, they automatically speak to me in English. And then if I speak and I'm sure you've gotten this too. Everyone gets this, right? The moment that you speak in Italian, then it's, yeah. oh my gosh, where did you learn to speak Italian so well? You know, and for me, it's like, um, my mom? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just like, duh, I was born and raised here. I went right. to school here for like 20 years. What should I speak? Yeah. It's always so interesting. It's always so interesting. As you already mentioned about your identity, I wanted to really, like this book, is born literally within your identity like you are a daughter of a white italian mom and a black father black american father from the u.s and i know you identify yourself as afro-italian the afro-italian identity is actually quite new it's still becoming and while the black american experience seems more defined since i met you i've always been curious about why do you prefer to identify yourself as afro-italian Italian rather than Black American. Yeah. Ooh, this is <laughs> this is getting deep. Um, you know, I'd say I think these days I move between a lot of different labels depending on sort of the context and who I'm with. And you know, the the term that I actually use more often these days is Italo-Afro-Americana, so Italian African American. Um, okay. But at different point, but at different points in my life, right? It the that that language of self-identification has really shifted. When I was 
in, say, high school. I went, so I actually went to a majority minority school, but I was in the sort of gifted advanced classes where I was one of only a couple of Black students. And I dealt with so much racism from people who just didn't think I deserved to be there or thought that I was an affirmative action or diversity person um, that as a kind of self-defensive mode, I would say, well, I'm Italian. No, I'm Italian. Because in my sort of young brain, that was the only way that I could think of to sort of say, no, 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 I belong here. I'm actually Italian. Of course, my parents, you know, I really owe a lot to my parents because I know that a lot of people who grow up in biracial households often have some really intense kind of struggles around their identity and the white parent who kind of negates their blackness. My parents were really amazing with me my whole life. I mean, they didn't have any kind of guidebook, but they raised me, you know, to speak both languages, to have pride in my heritage. They would always tell me, you know, you don't have to choose. You are both. You are all of these things and you can be a proud black woman and you can be a proud Italian. But you know, the world is, the world, the whole world isn't like my parents. Uh, so I struggled a lot. And then when I went to college and, you know, I found the Africana studies department and took black studies classes, that became very politicizing for me. And then, you know, that's when I really started to very kind of militantly identify as black. I always knew I was black, but that's when it really sort of started to make sense for me. But then I always felt like it was either the Italian piece or it was the black piece. I couldn't figure out how to hold them together. And I think part of it was because in the US, my experience as a black woman didn't sort of fit within the most common kind of black experiences, right? I was biracial. I was a dual citizen. I had one parent who was from Europe, right? I grew up speaking Italian. I had all this family in Italy. There were these two parts of my culture that were really important. And so I felt like I didn't really fit within the kind of black American experience. And then actually, when I started doing the research for this book, that's when everything really changed for me. It was really getting to know other black Italians and forming close friendships with people who had also been navigating these questions their whole lives. That's when I really, you know, when I, so I did research for the book between 2012 and 2019, but I lived in Italy for the whole year of 2016 doing research. And it's when I left Italy at the end of 2016 that for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a sense of confidence in who I was. Now, that being said, you know, it's also important for me to acknowledge that my experience of being a Black Italian or being Afro-Italian is really different from so many of my friends and comrades in Italy. Just the fact that I have Italian citizenship, right? I was born with Italian citizenship through Eusanguinis because my mother is an Italian citizen. And so many of my friends are disenfranchised because of the same law that allows me to be an Italian citizen. And so those those differences are are really important. But, you know, you're absolutely right. I, you know, when I started doing interviews for this book in 2012-2013, people were saying to me, "Yeah, it's only recently that, you know, I've started to think of myself as Afro-Italian or Black Italian." And I kind of feel like in many ways my own identity journey has kind of paralleled that, you know, that it was really only through doing this book that I started to kind of understand myself as Black Italian, or, or like I said, as, you know, Italo Afroamericana, all those pieces fitting together finally. Wow, that's so interesting, because I've been really, I used to, I used to think of quite a lot, I always, always intrigued by the way people socialize, the way people identify myself, like myself, because, and people not like myself, because I'm always fascinated by the 
way people identify themselves. And I always like to hear how this becomes and identity is always becoming. One interesting piece that you've shared is the fact that you found confidence within Italy. And I find that interesting because I think of many Afro-Italians that oftentimes do find a confidence while abroad and actually not between Italy. And even when I think for myself, I became quite confident in my teens, more more and more confident. But I got even more confident when I was living in the UK because there were other black people which I, I could identify with to a certain extent in the end. But I, I think it's very interesting the fact that you found confidence during your time here in Italy. So talking, I think you mentioned right now about your family. So in your book, yes, you talk about your personal experience and I remember something stood out to me in page 117 where you mentioned your cousin's husband here in Italy talking about the right of, in this case he was talking for Italians, for defending his race. And he's told that to you, a biracial woman. Something I'm also very curious about. It's your mom and how she was perceived, especially within your Italian family, especially in place Rescore, which is few minutes away from where I grew up, so quite conservative area. Also, what's the understanding of race that you observe here in Italy through that experience? I, I want to go back to, before I answer that, I want to go back to what you were saying before about finding confidence in, in my identity in Italy. And sure. one thing I just want to add to that is that it had nothing to do with the Italian society writ large and all to do with finding other comrades, finding Black Italian comrades and finding a sense of purpose and a sense of identity through shared political struggle. So, you know, I think that's that's what's really key, right? I mean, if it weren't for that, I've had, you know, so many moments of identity crisis in Italy with the microaggressions and the stares, right? But it was, yeah. it was really about kind of finding, being able to find community in a way mm. that I hadn't found previously in the United States. Um, well, but to your question... Yeah, of course. So, you know, the story of my parents is really interesting. And I think it's actually another kind of, it's also another story about diaspora and diaspora in power. So my parents met in Italy in the 1970s, and they got married in 1976. They were the first, um, not in Prescore, but in a small town, I believe up in Alto Adige, because around that time, my mom was working for her brothers who had a butcher shop, and they would deliver meat to a lot of the ski resorts up in the mountains. And my dad was based at a military base nearby. So they met up in the north and they were the first interracial couple to be married in that small town. And in fact, they recently went back and like everyone remembers them because it was a big deal in 1976. Wow. Now, my mom was the youngest of 13. And what's what I find really fascinating is that my nonna and my nonna, I, I knew my nonna, but my nonna passed away before I was born. They loved my dad. They loved and accepted my dad. And there were some men who my aunts married who were not allowed in his house. He hated them so much that they were not allowed in the house. So it's not like he was a sort of easygoing man, but they really loved and respected my father. And in fact, my nonno, when they would, you know, talk on the phone, he used to always tell my dad, oh, you know, you spoil Giliola too much. The joke Aww. that my mom always tells is that her father, she said, my father used to say to me, you can marry anyone you want as long as he's not a police officer or a Southern Italian. So her joke is that technically she did neither. And I think what the difference was, and you know, there's a whole 
whole story there about anti-Southernism, right? Because we're talking about Trescore in Bergamo and saying you can't marry a Southerner. Mm. But I think what saved my parents is that my father was American. He was Black, but he was American and he was in the military, right? And so for my family, you know, rural a farming family, right? He was basically someone who was going to take her to America and give her this wonderful life. She did have, you know, there were definitely some family members who said racist things. Um, But, you know, for the most part, what I've found is that when we're all together in Italy, you know, when we're with the family and it's me and my mom and my dad, even among those relatives who are racist, they kind of make an exception for me and my dad. And I think it's two things. I think one is that they see us as more American than Black. And my dad has all these stories about how, you know, Italians will be very racist to him until they realize that he's American and then they change their tune. Because I do think that there's a way that African Americans are much more accepted and looked up to in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fact that we're seen as family, so we don't count. And so what that happen- what that means is that we have relatives who will be very, very comfortable saying very racist things, very anti-Black, very xenophobic things in front of us, because in their minds, they're not talking about us. We're different. And that's been really hard. The other thing I want to say about my mom is that there have been so many times when, um, when I was from when I was very little to even now, where we are out and about in Trescore or, you know, Bergamo, Città Alta, and someone asks her a funny question about me. Oh, did you adopt that little girl from Africa? Or, you know, where is she from with hair like that? That's not, you know, that's not, you know, hair from Bergamo. So, you know, we still get those, that confusion where people can't believe that I'm her daughter or that I'm Bergamasca, right? And my mom, you know, there's something about, you know, the combination and everything, her having a, a Black daughter and a Black husband, and then that fierce Italian motherhood where she has just become this incredible, kind of bold, boldly anti-racist white Italian woman, which is something I'm really grateful for. I haven't met her yet, but I already love her because I remember <laughs> seeing pictures of her outside of the, I think outside of the embassy probably in the US. And I think she, yeah. She's, yeah, she's, I think that might have, I'm trying to think who was that, that protest that we organized at the consulate, I don't think she was here for that, but she has, I mean, she has gone to events in Italy that I can't even go to. And so my friends in Italy are like, oh yeah, we've met your mom, we've met your dad, we love them, <laughs> you know? That's so cool. That's so cool. I love I love it. I love it. From your discussions between your family and being in Italy, I think many people that even listen to the podcast oftentimes do not understand the race dynamic here in Italy. Mm-hmm. Could you share us could you share with us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I it's so important because I think the way that racism plays out in Italy is really different than say in the United States. Gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm even trying to think about where to start. I mean, you know, for one, obviously, Italy has a, a long history of anti-Blackness and racism that's really baked into the national project itself. But there's a lot of denial around the persistence of racism in Italy. And oftentimes, when I was doing my work, I would get pushback from people who would say that I was bringing American ideas, American problems to Italy, where, you know, they don't have those same problems. But, you know, the reality is that Ever since the Italian nation existed, the 
idea of who is Italian and who gets to be a citizen has always been shaped by ideas about race, right? Where from, you know, Southern Italians being seen as less Italian because they were supposedly racially close to Africans or during Italian colonialism when there were strictly defined laws about whether or not colonized subjects could be recognized as Italians. You know, obviously the fascist period as well had a consolidation of, you know, ideas of whiteness and racial segregation, even even to the present, right? When Italy became a country of immigration in the 80s and the 90s, um, that was met by increasingly strict immigration laws, the restriction of citizenship, right? A really obvious racialization of citizenship that says, okay, if you are ethnically descendant from an Italian, but you've never stepped foot in Italy, you are Italian. But if your parents came from Senegal and you were born in Italy, you're not, you're not really Italian. And I think one of the most frustrating things, and one thing I'll say, one of the questions I always get asked is, which country is more racist, Italy or the United States? And my answer is always, they're both racist. It just looks different. The racism looks different in different places. I think one of the challenges in Italy is that after World War II, there was never a kind of period of reconstruction after fascism. There wasn't a kind of national reckoning with the horrors of fascism, the violence of colonialism. It was all swept under the rug. And instead, there was this sort of, you know, the the sort of imposition of the new status quo, which is that race doesn't exist. If you talk about race, that makes you fascist. And so we're just not, it's not a problem. It's not here. There's nothing to see here, right? It's like a Jedi mind trick. The problem is that racism didn't go away. It never went away. But Italy never developed the kind of critical language for talking about racism and analyzing racism, right? For all the problems in the United States, I think there's been a kind of longer history of um, a critical mass of Black struggle that has helped to bring a language that's still contested, but kind of bring forward a language for talking about structural racism, anti-Blackness. But in Italy, when I started doing this work in 2012, I got yelled at for saying grazza. Someone said, no, 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 we don't say that here. That sounds too fascist. Or if I said black, people would correct me and say, no, 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 it's di colore, which of course, di colore has a very different connotation than the English translation of of color, right? And so it's only been relatively recently, largely thanks to the mobilizations of black activists and cultural workers and intellectuals to say, we have to build a language in Italian that can diagnose this racism that still exists in the society. And so I think part one of the many reasons why we're seeing this incredible xenophobic fascist backlash is because there was never a real effort to say, here's what happened. And here's how we work to make sure it doesn't happen again. Here's how we look out for racism. Here's how we identify it. Here's how we fight it. It's just always been pretending that it's not there, pretending that it's not there. Um, And so of course, it's just going to come back with a vengeance. And that's what we see with Meloni, who is now very explicitly using fascist language and fascist rhetoric. And then I get into arguments with family friends on Facebook who say, I don't see anything fascist in what she says. That's all propaganda because there just isn't that knowledge. (laughs) That's 
<laughs> that's interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Like, thank you. I think you gave such a powerful explanation, especially for people that do not know Italy, do not understand, like, how can it be this way? And it's important what you say. There's not been a reckoning. You know, one of the most asked questions to me since this government has came into power, I wish people would have asked me if I was actually okay, but <laughs> I got asked if Georgia Meloni was actually from the far right because people could not believe that she was actually from the far right though that was written in international mm. newspaper but what you perfectly explained about the fact that Italy did not have a reckoning with fascism we say coming back and Italians have this thing about when there is a problem I don't know do we name it do we talk about it uh, maybe we just complain maybe we just wash our consciousness a little bit mm-hmm. but do we face it Mm, maybe not and then we will deal with the consequences later but the consequences later can mean having a fascist government exactly a, a hundred years exactly later after the march on rome by right. Militant Mussolini. yeah that's such powerful like language and explanation thank you camilla for that and as mm-hmm. we're talking about the past i saw a few months ago you attended a meeting at the vatican regarding reparations from the catholic church a few mm-hmm. weeks ago we saw the passing of queen elizabeth and this has sparked conversation about the british colonialism and british crimes that have been done all over the world why is it key for this diaspora and probably i will also say for the african continent to talk about reparation i love that you've asked this question because i'm actually teaching a class at uc santa cruz this quarter called the political economy of race and it's all about the connection between racism and capitalism or race and political economy and there's all always a a unit that I do in that class that is specifically about legacies of colonialism. And so we start by talking about King Leopold of Belgium, right? King Leopold, who was the owner who and and sole controller of the Congo Free State, who extracted millions and millions of dollars of wealth through the enslavement and incredibly brutal violence against the people of the Congo, right? Particularly for the extraction of rubber. And one of the things that I have the students do is look at, there's this great tool online where you can superimpose countries on top of each other. And so we superimpose Belgium on top of the Congo. Belgium is this tiny speck of a country with pretty much no natural resources, right? And what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo is this huge country with a wealth of natural resources. And so we say, how is it that today the DRC is considered a part of the global south or, you know, lower on the international developments? And Belgium is this incredibly wealthy European country. How do we explain that? Because what is now Belgium, the wealth that undergirds Belgium was extracted from the Congo. That that wealth was only made possible through the underdevelopment of other countries. And that's true for the whole history of Europe. We can't talk about the UK. You know, we can't talk about all of the jewels that are in Queen Elizabeth, that were in Queen Elizabeth's crown without talking about the places from which those jewels and the sugar and um, the the cotton 
and the tobacco, all of these resources, the rum, the sugar that made the rum, right, were so violently extracted. The land that was colonized, the land that was exploited, the people who were captured and exploited and killed. And so, you know, the problem today is that these European countries sort of operate under the assumption that their wealth and their development is because they're more technologically advanced, more educated, more hardworking, more enterprising. But if you actually use the tools of post and decolonial theory, you understand that you can't look at a European country in isolation from its colonial entanglements. And that the rest of the world, right, these formerly colonized countries are underdeveloped precisely because Europe is so developed. There is a debt that is owed. There's really no other way to explain it. There is a debt that is owed. And the same goes for Italy and its Italian colonies. And in fact, even when we talk about, you know, the Mediterranean migration emergency or, you know, the UK and its efforts to try and uh, stop refugees and asylum seekers from arriving, even a lot of those migration flows are the result of displacement from political and economic instability that was set in motion by colonialism. So the event at the Vatican was really interesting because often when we talk about reparations, we're talking about reparations from, you know, nation states like, uh, you know, uh, the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, for instance, for the Herero and Nama genocide. But we rarely talk about the, the role of religious institutions as well. And, you know, obviously, right, the Vatican is itself a state too. But what was really important about the Vatican meetings, and I went um, primarily as an observer, there was a, a broader network of activists who had really helped to put this all together. Um, but what they were doing is actually going into the historical record and showing how the Catholic Church was basically in bed with these European countries that were engaging in colonization, providing contracts, and also issuing papal bull uh, that sort of set in motion the ideological discourses of racial inferiority that legitimated colonial expansion, that legitimated the slave trade. And of course, we also know from some very prominent examples from Catholic institutions in the US that there were even Catholic institutions like Georgetown University that owned enslaved Africans as well. And so I think it's important when we talk about reparations to also remember that that there were religious institutions as well that were involved in supporting and legitimating enslavement and colonialism. Yes, yes, and yes. I was I had to mute myself because I kept on say yes 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 and <laughs> everything that you said but it's important to talk about responsibility and accountability what you spoke is very very important because there is this idea like there is this erasure especially between european history but also church history as well about wow. responsibility so oftentimes they just think like oh with the good works charity work we're gonna make up for the mess that we have done we need a little bit more than that a little bit a lot more than that and what you shared is absolutely key to understand our current economies the power structures between our world yes no thank you so much i have i think one last question and then uh, we can conclude although i really do love talking with you Campbell, and hearing you talk it's just uh, i just love it your students are so lucky seriously (laughs) because you're, well, you're I don't know. I mean, then if you if you see how much reading I make them do, 
but I'm loving this conversation. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. So the question that I have for you is about, as we talk about economics, yeah, and uh, yeah. capitalism, exploitation. So you dedicated a chapter to Afro-Italian women entrepreneurs like Evelyn Sarah Afawa uh, from Napitalia. So how can we fight uh, for citizenship rights here in Italy while being activists, maybe also entrepreneurs, without falling into the exclusion of refugees and perpetuating the exploitation of workers? Or do you think there should be a new way or new ways to advocate for rights? Oh, that's such a good question. And, and I feel, you know, even in the book, I didn't, I, I never, I, I was still struggling with this even in the book. And I think when you read that chapter, you can see how I'm trying to fit these things together. And, you know, one of the things I say is that I didn't actually set out to write about entrepreneurs when I started my research, right? That I sort of expected that I would always be like marching in the streets at protests with my fist in the air. And it was only, and this is partly why I think ethnographic research is so fascinating because you go where the research takes you. And it means often that you're surprised that, that your, your quote unquote field site surprises. And what I found was that so many important conversations about what it meant to be black and about being a black woman in Italy and about citizenship were happening through these entrepreneurial spaces. Black women talking about hair care or talking about fashion or talking about beauty and beauty standards and makeup. And so, you know, I came from a very, a very Marxist geography department. And, you know, I still, I still am a Marxist, but it nuanced my thinking, right? Because there was no way that I could dismiss this work. This was cultural work, right? It's, you know, the, the great British Jamaican intellectual, Stuart Hall, who says, you know, we have to, we have to take seriously the, the creative ways that people are, you know, living and surviving and making sense of the world under capitalism, right? And, you know, in in a context where so many Black Italians are precluded from particular career fields because they don't have access to citizenship and all these other things, entrepreneurship did become this important space for people, you know, to say, not only am I finding a way to support myself, but I'm also creating community, I'm connecting with other Black people, and I am, I'm showing that I'm part of this country. So in that sense, I think it's important, you know, the the example that I spend the most time talking about is the, the natural hair movement, you know, which includes people like Evelyn and people like Naturangi and, and so many others. And, you know, not only are they um, selling products and services, but they have um, created spaces where women can come together and talk about what it means to be Italian and what it means to be Black. And many people I've spoken to became politicized through their engagement with those conversations about things like hair and beauty. I think where it gets really complicated is when entrepreneurship becomes a way to make claims on the state for citizenship. And this is not, I don't blame Black Italian entrepreneurs for this. This is a problem of the Italian state, right? It's the problem of an Italian society that operates from the assumption that if you are Black in Italy, you are either here to steal jobs from hardworking Italians, or you're here to live on the dole, right? To take your however many euros a day in pocket money, which is 
obviously a total myth. But we saw that in that infamous picture of Samuel L. Jackson and Magic Johnson, right, who are shopping on a street bench or sitting on a street bench after shopping. And all these Italians thought that they were refugees using their money from the government to buy products. There are these deeply ingrained racial stereotypes uh, that if you're Black, you're an outsider and you're not contributing. And so according to that logic, the only way that you can say that you belong is to say, I'm contributing. I make a contribution. I'm making the country better. But of course, the problem that I sort of outline in the book is that it kind of creates this distinction between those Black people who are able to show that they are educated and able to start businesses and be entrepreneurial. The Italian media loves stories about uh, about Black people in Italy who start businesses or save failing businesses, right? These heartwarming stories. To draw a distinction between them and then the bad refugees, right? Who aren't contributing. Even though it should be worth noting that, you know, while you're waiting for your status to be regularized as an asylum seeker, you're actually legally barred from work. So, you know, you couldn't even, in some circumstances, you couldn't even work if you wanted to. The other problem, and there have been activists in the U.S. that talk about this as well. So there's a really interesting parallel between the citizenship reform movement in Italy and the DACA movement in the U.S., right, which is to provide citizenship for the children of undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States when they were very little. And what happened at one point in the struggle for DACA was that the discourse of the movement was, you know, we're law-abiding, we go to school, and we work hard. But other activists said, wait, hold on, this is just perpetuating this distinction between good immigrants and bad immigrants. And it also ends up, this is, you know, now you can see like my Marxism showing, but it also ends up legitimating the exploitation of migrant workers by saying, yeah, we want you here, but as long as you work your ass off, because otherwise we don't trust you to stay. And so I think the key thing here is that we ultimately on a broader scale have to move away from this idea of who deserves citizenship to understand that Everyone has a right to move across borders. Everyone has a right to move freely, to be protected, to to be protected by laws, to have access to universal rights like housing and healthcare and a stable livelihood, regardless of whether you are an immigrant, regardless of your race, right? We have to move away from this idea that, you know, you only are eligible to be a citizen if you worked really hard and checked all these boxes. So I think that's really the bottom line for me. Thank you so much. I actually had this question because I could see actually the struggle within the chapter and I saw probably within the book also, I think you did a great job not trying to judge. Although, I, I, as you said, you're a Marseille. I'm very, I, <laughs> the, literally Marseille is my base of what I've learned and one of my favorite people to read and understand society. And uh, literally, I understand where you're coming from and something that also have that internal struggle as well when it comes to different things and especially between my political ideas and fighting for citizenship but by also not try to dismiss and exclude other people so I really wanted you to answer this question because I could see actually the struggle between the book and I was like, uh, but, like is she gonna say is she gonna say it but like yeah thank you thank you so much for clarifying this question and answering this question and thank you so much for being with us the question I have for you is wait I forgot to ask in the beginning how you were doing I think I think we had our chat on how you were doing but normally on my podcast I always ask guests how they're doing because especially 
actually are like to destigmatize mental health as well yeah so yeah i wanted to ask how you do it and if is there anything else that you want to share with the book and remind them about the book i will remind you about the book guys as well please go and get this book it's so important it's so major key you have to read this book literally <laughs> i made our library order it today i made an order it for our library at work wow. so please make sure that you read this book because it's so important to understand so many issues it's insightful and so easy to read as well i came from i was reading a book on psychology that i thought i was gonna enjoy and it took me forever to finish it and i opened your book and i'm just whoa like it was so nice <laughs> to read digest and to understand so much literally you can be a Marxist you can be an activist you cannot be an activist I think you will be able to understand this book that's I think the key of understanding of this book and the strength of this book and the work that Camilla has done is the fact that she has been able to make this kind of topics accessible to everyone and I cannot wait to see the Italian translation like outside of the promotion please go ahead and ask my <laughs> questions sorry as much. oh thank you so much and yeah one thing I want to add no is worries. that I was able to get some grant funding together to make the book open access. So if you want to buy a physical copy of the book, you can do that. And if for whatever reason that's not accessible to you, you can also download a PDF of the book as well. So I, you know, for me, what's most important is that as many people um, who want to have access to the book can. And then, yeah, I'm also um, working with Marie Moise on the Italian translation of the book, which will be coming out next year. So I'm excited about that. And I to answer your wait. Oh, yeah, I'm I really excited. Wait. Sorry, I <laughs> I cannot wait to see the translation. I love Maria as well. And also, I want to stress that you see, she's a Marxist. What, so what did she do? She did not only sell a book, she made it accessible. <laughs> so just remember that. Just remember that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Maria is amazing. Um, and I mean, she's translated Angela Davis and Adrian Marie Brown. So I'm just, and you know, one of the, just one thing I'll say, you know, we've talked about some of the, the problems and challenges around language in Italy. And for me, that means finding the right translator, right, who really understands that language is political and that our words also help to shape our political horizons is so important. And, and, and Maria is undoubtedly that person. So I'm very happy about that. To answer your question, and I love that you are destigmatizing mental health. It's so important in the Black community and it's so important for Black. I have a therapist who I see every other week and I'm so grateful that I have the resources to be able to do that. I'm doing okay. The quarter has, the academic term has just started at UC Santa Cruz. So I'm coming off of um, a long summer break and, you know, getting back into the, the mix of teaching and chairing committees and my academic work, finding a lot of joy in my hobby. Um, I had a, a really serious accident last year and it put a lot of things into perspective for me. And it really made me realize that as much as I love the work that I do, I love teaching and researching and writing. Work can't be my life. And so it's taught me to really take um, my hobbies seriously. I, I play music. Um, I do aerial dance. I like to knit. Um, spending time with my family and my partner and my cat, that all of those things are just as important as working. And so, you know, as things start to get really Really busy and you know I have a lot I have anxiety and so I have to be really mindful of making sure that I keep balance in my life and part of that is making sure that I carve out time for these other things and you know I'm turning I'm turning 35 tomorrow and so it's also been a great opportunity to kind of 
reflect as I head into the second half of my 30s about what my priorities are um, and how I want to set healthy habits for myself moving forward. So, you know, there's a lot that I'm there's a lot that I'm thinking about right now. But generally, um, I'm really, really grateful for the community that I have. That's what really makes life meaningful. And, you know, one other thing I'll just add is that I think those of us who have connections to Italy have been hit really hard by the news of the elections, you know, the the election of a neo-fascist, Giorgia Meloni, as prime minister. And that's been, you know, that's one thing that has, I've been very sad and very angry about that. And for me, in times like that, I also, uh, like, you know, you take time to mourn, and then you also figure out, okay, how do we how do we get to work right so finding for me a lot of that healing comes in community and thinking about how do we organize and how do we fight and how do we struggle together and so knowing that there are these movements in Italy but also transnational movements against this rising tide of fascism gives me hope in really dark times that's a beautiful note to conclude on and I want to thank you as well for sharing on how you're doing and also like about your accident may I say I'm grateful that you are here you have recovered I've followed your journey on social media and it's just I just it's just so beautiful to see the way you have recovered and the way that you're spending time now enjoy your hobbies like you were doing that before I thought like you were doing a lot of hobbies I know you do eat knitting as well did your mom teach you to eat knitting by the way uh she did she taught me how to knit and crochet yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's a very Italian mom thing to do <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah 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 I feel like it's a very Italian mom thing to do because I remember I learned at school I think or something my mom knew how to sew but she didn't know how to knit so i think i had some family friends as well that taught me how to do a little bit of knitting but not good at it i'm not good at it my mom taught me knitting and she taught me punto croce um cross stitch oh yeah Yeah. oh yeah yeah i can do that as well i've learned that as well too from family friends as well camilla on this note i want to say a big thank you for being a guest on this podcast a big thank you for everything that you do and the person that you are the academic that you are i'm truly truly grateful thank you so much please let the people know where they can find you on socials yep so i'm on uh twitter at camilla c-a-m-i-l-l-a-h-a-w-t-h so you can follow me there for uh updates about new articles um that i'm publishing stuff about the book and then the occasional picture of me uh flailing in my aerial hoop and then uh, my website is camillahawthorne.com with more of my my writings and uh, information about my work that's amazing Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you for everybody that has listened to this podcast, has come to the end of this podcast. Don't forget to share the episode and follow the Chronicles of a Black Italian Women at Chronicles of a ABIWV on Instagram. And you can also find me on... Uh, I never promote my Twitter, but actually on Twitter, I have a lot of interaction with Camila. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also Twitter at Smiley Benny and the same is on Instagram at Smiley Benny. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Camilla, for being with us. Have a great day, month, whatever, whatever you are at this time <laughs> listening to this podcast. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.